It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. We got a big show uh, for you. His planned topic, uh, transparency around certificates. An interesting way to find out if the certificates your site is using are real, if they're from your site, what other certificates might be out there from somebody pretending to be your site. We'll also talk about Microsoft's Patch Tuesday. This may have gone unnoticed, but one of the patches may be one of the worst vulnerabilities ever. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 481, recorded November 11th, 2014. Certificate Transparency. Security Now is brought to you by IT Pro TV. A good IT Pro is always learning, and IT Pro TV is the resource to keep your skills and knowledge up to date. IT Pro TV offers engaging courses streamed to your Roku, your computer, your mobile device. For 30% off the lifetime of your account, go to itpro.tv slash security now and use the code SN30. And by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. Save 50% with a 12-month subscription right now. Go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN50 at checkout. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security and privacy online with the guy, the man, the explainer-in-chief, Mr. Stephen Tiberius Gibson. Hello, Stephen. Good to see you. I'm going to say hey, this right Great. up front because they ask this every time in the chat room. What, what are those blinky lights over okay. your left shoulder? <laughs> those are uh, those are clones of the very first mini computer that one of the very first mini computers I ever programmed. The venerable DEC, the Digital Equipment Corporation, PDP-8. Yeah, and maybe. some years ago... Um, the, the the very end of life of that mini computer, which itself was like a, a sort of a small refrigerator size thing. I mean, it was the original one was just indiv- not even integrated circuits. This predated the availability of ICs, so this was the so-called discrete uh, components: transistors, resistors, and capacitors. Mostly transistors and resistors. There wasn't much need for capacitors back then, uh, in the signal path anyway, and. Um, uh, so it's a 12-bit mini computer that has three bits for the operation code, meaning that in sort of nominally eight different instructions, except that the math is, is has more power in, in the individual bits and the rest of the instructions. So um, I, at the very end of life, they made a chip. They put the entire mini computer into a single chip and some guy found some of those available on you know like on the surplus market and uh and i've got mail coming in here just dist- dist- distracting me there uh uh and uh made a kit that uh that a number of people built and of course one wasn't enough for me. I had to have three. So there's three PDP-8s. Oh, and I forgot to say that what what's, what the blinky lights are is the whole point of, of, of the old-style mini computers was that they had front panels. They had so-called, 
you know, lights and switches, blinking lights and switches, um, some kind, sometimes known as the blinking lights panels. <laughs> uh, so I wrote some software to show that off. That is what it because this is the way computers back in back then looked like when they were actually doing something was that they'd they sort of had a sort of a sporadic changing. They weren't just like blinking like uh randomly in a constant pattern and so I attempted to write some software that made them look like they were actually busy. So nothing's actually happening back there at all. But it's <laughs> just fun. What what's the clock speed on those? Uh, boy, uh, uh, very, I should know that. That's fast. annoying. But um, you can't yeah. compare it to a to a kind of a standard microprocessor either. Oh Lord, no. Um, I, I know that some of the cycle times on the core memory, because that's what they used, right. was like twelve hundred microseconds, so one point two milliseconds. And a millisecond would be a thousand instructions per second. So that's right around because there are also some cycle times of eight hundred um, microseconds, which would be a little faster than than a, a millisecond. So right around the average, you know, right around the neighborhood of a thousand instructions per second. So when and, and the and these, for example, did not have a any hardware multiply or division. And multiplication and division are famously and sort of paradoxically difficult things. I mean, they're, they're time-consuming to do. They're they're iterative, and you you essentially you you take in the case of, for example, a 12-bit computer. If you multiply two 12-bit values, you get a 24-bit result. So the act of multiplying involves lots of shifting and bit testing and and summing, and then you and, and you need to do multi. You need to do double precision math. So where you have to take the carry from the output of the first half, and and then and then and move it into the second half. The point is that just doing something simple that we, like we would think of simple, like a multiply, which contemporary chips just all do instantly. You know, they've got dedicated hardware where you just give it the two numbers and it says, "Here's your answer." Um, that takes a long time. And when every single one of those processes is a thousandth of a second, before long you've used up a second just to do something simple. So uh, those, I mean, I, what I miss about those days is you had very little memory, four K words, 4,000 words was the sort of like the, the, the starting point. And since it was 12 bits, that is 4K. 10, you know, 10 bits is 1K. So 12 bits is 4K. So then, I mean, so that was the normal default amount of memory is 4K words. And they had a basic interpreter running, you know, interpreting the basic language in 4K. Well, I wish somebody would say to me, Steve, <laughs> it's really important for you for, for us to have one. Because I would just love to do that, but no one's asking for that anymore. Apparently not. <laughs> no. Why not? You'd think there'd be. That's just my strange nature. <laughs>
the best I could do now is program everything in assembly language, which I yeah, which everybody already thinks is a little. You're dimension. already crackpot. Don't, nah, don't push it any farther. I'm out. <laughs> I I didn't mean to sidetrack you, but uh, about every eight episodes, you should probably yeah, it's just perfect. That, Give yeah. me a reminder <laughs> when we need to just explain what's the, what what all that is back there yeah. going on. And for, and a couple of times during the uh, ten year tenure of this show. I like that. The 10-year tenure. Uh, you have mentioned that these kits are available and because uh, a guy has to silk screen them in a batch and blah, blah, blah. But uh, So currently not available, these PDP-8 uh, clones. Right. They have, they have come and gone. Sometimes you'll see somebody parting with one on eBay, you know, with a tear in his eye. Um, and I mean, and I have some of the original PDP-8s and 11s and 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 like reel to reel. They had they had a beautiful little tape drive called Deck Tape, which used cute little reels, and it it used a a, a, a mylar technology where it was mylar on both sides containing the the magnetic material rather than traditional tape that was that was the the oxide on one side of the mylar, and those have not stood up well over time, whereas deck tape has. Um, anyway, someday, you know, my, my plan is to bring all that stuff back to life. I just, you know, uh, if no one's going to ask me to do it now, I'll, <laughs> I'll give myself the project when I'm 70. We do have quite a bit to talk about today. Um, you're going to do a, a, what you call a propeller hat episode. Yeah, um, there's... Uh, when I um, I settled down to think, okay, what do I want to talk about this week? And I didn't want to do another Q and A because we've had two in a row. Um, we it was a relatively quiet security f- period during the last week. Uh, I do want to talk about something really fun that happened for me. Um, I uh, snuck off to Las Vegas and presented Squirrel for the very first presentation of its life ever. Uh, at a security summit uh, in Las Vegas and encountered the lead architect of the main, Squirrel's main competition, the FIDO project that we've talked about. Oh, you talked uh, to them. Oh, good. And blew his mind. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> it, good. Even better. It was really, really made the whole thing way worthwhile for awesome. me. Uh, awesome. Although I really enjoyed that. And, and, and the, the conference was hosted by Digister. But anyway, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, what I, the, the topic for today is something that's been in the air for a little over a year. Um, and this is another of Google's many initiatives uh, you know, largely which m- most of which I support. I mean, I'm as we know, I chafe a little bit when they decide that the, the, some of the things they want to do, or um, I don't feel like they're being completely forthcoming. You know, the CRL set controversy, of course, comes to mind. Um, and then I was a little annoyed at them arbitrarily pushing forward or forward all of the the expiration of SHA one certs just because they wanted to. Um, uh, but there, but there are other things like we've talked about speedy, they're working on protocols to smooth and enhance and, and speed up our experience using the web. And obviously they have a huge commitment to that themselves. What, um, what the, today's topic is something known as certificate transparency. And there's a website, certificate-transparency.org where, which is like the formal place where this lives, there's an RFC 
I can't remember what it is. I've written down. We'll get to it later. But the point is, this is Google's um, initiative, which is underway. There is an, as I said, there's an RFC submitted last July, July of 2013, um, to augment and fix the problems with the current certificate hierarchy. The whole certificate authority trust, you know, root trust problem that we talk about all the time. So um, there are to really get into the implementation. I haven't figured out how to explain how to explain it in in an in an audio podcast without lots of diagrams. But to give us to give everyone a sense of it that we can do. And that's really enough for now because I'm not sure if it's going to happen. I mean, it's to to listen to Google, it, they're going to make it happen because they're going to require it for EV certs starting early next year. Like I I read February of 2015, which is not long from now. Um, but but anyway, so that so that's today's topic. We'll talk about that. Um, uh, and we have to talk about this is the second Tuesday of the month. And as I was saying to Leo before he hit the record button uh, just now, I was just sort of rummaging around through the, the, you know, the patch Tuesday. And the third one just poked me in the eye. It's Uh-oh. like, oh, my Uh-oh. goodness, I'll be making a trip to my data center this <laughs> afternoon. Whoa. Um, like, wow. And so will every single person running a web server with IIS and even Windows users who are not having servers exposed uh, have to do this. So we got a big patch Tuesday. We got, um, oh, and a a surprising event in the net neutrality struggle occurred yesterday that I'll chat with Leo about. Uh, I want to talk a, little, talk a little bit about my trip to Las Vegas and and what happened uh, and an important Belkin firmware router update. Uh, so a, another great podcast, I think. Can't wait. Before we get uh, too far into the uh, weeds, let's start a little uh, conversation about our great friends at IT Pro TV. They've got a, some pretty exciting announcement uh, coming up here. But let me explain first what IT Pro TV is, well, it says it right on the front page, an easy and entertaining approach to online IT training, or uh, as they sometimes say, uh, learn without even knowing it, IT. IT Pro TV is, was created by two guys, Tim and Don, who were longtime IT trainers. I mean, guys who had been doing this for years. They saw what we did here at Twit, they actually went to a panel that I was on at the National Association of Broadcasters, and they got a bright idea. Wish they'd talk to me first, but they got a bright idea. Why don't we do what uh, Twit does, but with for IT training? Actually, I, I'm being facetious because they have done a great job of it. I'm really proud of the work they've done, and it really is a great solution for anybody who wants to polish up their IT skills, maybe get a cert so they can get a better job, or a company that wants to keep its uh, IT department up to speed. Hundreds of hours of content now. 30 hours are added each week. Yes, they do it live. In fact, we're watching a live stream right now, if you're on the video uh, stream, uh, including the live chat room, just, just as we do. So you can go in there. You can ask questions. There's Don right there. 
Their episodes uh, cover things like Apple, Microsoft, Cisco. You can get your A-plus training there, your CCNA, your Security Plus, your MCSA, your CISSP, your Linux Plus. So they cover everything, including Windows, Linux, and OS X, support for desktops and servers. And it's not boring, boring far from it. It re- actually really looks more like the screensavers, doesn't it, on that set? I mean, they really do a great job of making it fun and entertaining. And you can, by the way, watch this, of course, as I am right now on your computer, but you can also watch it uh, on your tablet, on your uh, on your phone, I guess, or your Roku. They have a Roku channel. So that means you could put it on your TV and leave it playing all day. And by osmosis, you would be prepared. <laughs> you would be ready. You can take the course library is well divided, so you can actually go to individual questions that you know you're going to get on the test and learn that part. Um, you could see if you look at the course library, they've got so much stuff and more coming all the time. And the price is right; it's much cheaper uh, than going to an IT boot camp. It's kind of comparable to the cost of a study guide if you got a really cheap one. And you get things you wouldn't get from a study guide. For instance, the measure up practice exams are included with your subscription. Um, let me go to the. Uh, this is so cool. If you have an HTML5 uh, compatible browser, I know you all do. If I go to the IT Pro Lab, we can actually launch a virtual virtual uh, lab. Servers, Windows servers, Windows clients, get the whole thing running. It's a VLab and sandbox. And, um, and you don't even have to – you could literally do this with any client – and uh, on, a, on a Chromebook, and you would have access to a Windows server. You can't mess it up. You just As soon as you screw it up, as I always do, <laughs> you just reboot and you're, <laughs> you're back to normal. You also get Q&A with the hosts. You get the test exams worth 79 bucks. What else? You get uh, annual subscribers can download free, uh, DRM-free full episodes. So you can – there it is. I've got Windows Server 2012 R2 running. I mean, this is wild. This is on a Mac. Access to the whole thing. And and you can't screw it up. You also, I don't know how to shut it down, so I'm just going to close the job. <laughs> <laughs> Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Subscriptions are normally $57 a month. I don't know why I do that every time. I guess I could. What if I do shut I think if I do shut down, it just goes, yeah, it just, it just, it stays there. It just go. it just goes anyway. $570 a year, $57 a month. We have a very nice offer, which they just made a heck of a lot nicer. If you go right now to itpro.tv slash security now and use the code SN30, you'll get 30% off. 30% off. So that means uh, $399 for a year, less than $40 a month. And get this, and this is what they just announced. Once you reach your 13th month of your subscription, they will automatically reduce your subscription rate even farther, bringing your cost down to $24.95 a month, $249 for the entire year. So if you take two years, you're good. <laughs> it's fun. It's fast. It's easy. ITPro.tv slash security now. Get 30% off with the code SN30 and even more off after you do a year. They're celebrating their first anniversary, and this is a way they're sharing their success with you. We're really proud of these guys. A year now. And they've been they've been so successful, uh, and I think a lot of that is due to security. Now, frankly, they love security. Now they love you, Steve, uh, and so they're, I'm just really pleased for them. We're very we're very proud to be associated with these guys. Congratulations, Tim and Don and the gang on their and their one year anniversary. Itpro.tv/slash/security. Now give it a try today. I think you'll like it an awful lot. An easy, entertaining approach to online training. 
All right, we're going to put you back to work, Steve. You got your eye drops in. You're ready to go. <laughs> I saw that. Yeah, I just they were a little bit dry, and I thought, yeah. oh, I'll put a little eye drops. Oh, it's a good time to do that. Now they're a little wet. Well, you're back from Vegas, and there's nothing drier. I mean, I tell you, I go to Vegas, and I come back with a sore oh, throat. Oh my every goodness! You're, time. I know. I was chapped. Yeah, chapped, chapped. I tell you. So uh, okay. let's do the security news first, and then we'll uh, we'll go on with the certificate transparency stuff. Yeah, of course. So okay, so it is Patch Tuesday, the second Tuesday of the month, and as I said. I was, you know, oh, and it was all, we already knew that it was going to be large. Uh, Microsoft sends out sort of a, I don't know why, but sort of a get ready <laughs> email a week before. Don't tell you, they don't tell you what you're getting ready for, but just sort of an overview of like, uh, just like, here comes, don't forget, Tuesday. Uh, so we knew, we knew a few days ago that this was going to be a biggie. Um, and it is a, I mean, just reg- independent of severity, in terms of quantity, this leaves nobody wanting. 16 individual patch bundles, where, you know, we often have three, this time 16. And in counting, in scanning through the CVE list, I counted 33 known vulnerabilities that were encompassed in within these 16 bundles. Except then I looked in the one for IE. Of course, there's always one for IE. It alone had 17 privately reported vulnerabilities that it was fixing. So then I'm thinking, okay, maybe I didn't count correctly, but because it seems like that would <laughs> lead us to more than 33. But, you know, because typically the bundles all handle multiple vulnerabilities rather than just one but you know this one ie this one ie bundle had 17 so um anyway so the third one down was ms14-066 and i and it's like okay uh and i'm reading what it says this security update resolves a privately reported vulnerability in the microsoft Secure Channel, S-Channel is their acronym for it, or abbreviation, S-Channel, Security Package in Windows. And it's worth noting that S-Channel is in all Windows forever. Uh, I mean, it's it was an original component of NT. It's where the, all of the security stuff resides. So all of the SSL, TLS, certificate handling, all of that's in S-Channel. Uh, I've programmed it many times. For example, all of that certificate stuff, the 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 certificate fingerprinting stuff that I did uh, on GRC's server, that's all S channel code uh, and so forth. So, the, and the point is, it's in both the client and the server. It's in Windows seven and eight and uh, okay, there is no nine, but ten, uh, uh, and also in you know uh, XP and old XP machines. Um, uh, in uh, to server server two thousand three two thousand eight twenty twelve and so forth. So it's everywhere. It 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 is a an intrinsic component of Windows. So this security update resolves a privately reported vulnerability in the Microsoft Security Channel S Channel Security Package in Windows. The vulnerability could allow remote code execution. If an attacker 
sends specially crafted packets to a Windows server. So, first of all, it's like, whoa, what? Um, I mean, all Windows servers on the net, by definition, have ports exposed. That's how you get to them. So, there's no hiding for a Windows server. It's out there. That's what it has to be. Um, then, you know, we, and we've talked about vulnerabilities, you know, Microsoft's whole vulnerability architecture through the years. So they have the exploitability index. And sometimes these things are like, well, yeah, if you stood on, if somehow you could stand on your right foot raised up on your big toe during a full moon and spin slowly counterclockwise while chanting, then, oh, and through a, you know, a ping pong ball through a small hoop 10 yards away, you'd have a chance of exploiting it. Not here. This, this is the worst exploitability they offer. Index one, which they call more likely to be exploited. Then we've also talked about how they always have sort of these cheesy mitigating factors where, oh, a bad guy would need to lure you to a website and you'd have to have scripting enabled and click on something and then, you know, agree to down blah, 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 blah. Okay, mitigating factors for this. Quote, Microsoft has not identified any mitigating factors for this vulnerability. In other words... There's nothing you can do. That sounds you know, good. It's bad. <laughs> no mitigating factors. Oh, that's good. No, that's bad. Yeah. You know, like, like, for example, we'll often talk about how, oh, go into the registry and you can turn, you know, add this setting to disable this obscure thing that you don't actually need and nobody actually uses, but it's on all the time anyway. So you can turn it off and then forget about it and you're fine. No. There's nothing like oh, nothing that not we good. know of that you can do to, 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 to like to mitigate this. And then they also have workarounds yeah. where like, well, you could turn this off and then turn to blah, blah, blah. So again, workarounds. Microsoft has not identified any workarounds yeah. for this vulnerability. Um, so what this says is that. I mean, and what, what I'm a little surprised about is since I saw this this morning, I'm seeing Twitter begin to catch up. People are looking through this as I did and going, whoa, hold on, what? Um, because unfortunately, this doesn't have a fancy name. We're not, this isn't Shell Shock or Humpty Dumpty or, you know, anything. No one gave it a, a cutesy name. But this is this is like to understand this is from what this looks like. This is as bad as it gets for a Microsoft, like for a major internet server vulnerability just sitting out here. I'm kind and of as I said, that they're not making a bigger deal out of this. Uh, well, they don't want to. Oh, and the other thing that I loved was that they do make a point of saying, "Oh, and we've added four shiny new TLS cipher suites. So it's like, oh, well, thanks, but you've also made every, you know, potentially every Windows server on the internet is like going to be vulnerable as soon as the bad guys figure out what it is, what magic packet 
you can send to every Windows server on the net today to take it over remotely. So they have an FAQ. That's and they terrible. Say, <laughs> okay, so okay, so I understand that what they're thinking is well, look, no, this isn't in the wild because this was privately Correct. found, privately reported. Yes. What we would like to do is get everybody just, patched as quietly as possible. Yes. And exactly. then slip, we'll mention it. Just slip it in and get it. Unfortunately, maybe nobody will notice. Yeah. Maybe they'll go, oh, look, we have four new TLS cipher suites. Isn't that nice? Oh, and it's fixing some little problem over here. Nothing. Don't pay no attention to the little problem over there. <laughs> cipher suites. So, so under their FAQ, they, they ask themselves the question because they really have no choice. What might an attacker oh, yeah. use the vulnerability to do? Answer, an attacker who successfully exploited this vulnerability could run arbitrary code on a target server. How could an attacker exploit this vulnerability? An attacker could attempt to exploit this vulnerability by sending specially crafted packets to a Windows server. Oh, but would anyone ever think to do that? Why would anyone? Why? Well, no. What systems are primarily at risk from the vulnerability? Then they said server and workstation <laughs> systems that are running an affected version of S channel are primarily at risk. Okay, wait a minute. There are no server and workstation systems that are not running an affected version wow. of S channel at this time. So okay, let me and, let me just capsulize this. There is a vulnerability affects all versions of Windows Server. Windows II it's IIS, right? All version of all versions of Windows. Of Windows. Yes, both both workstations and servers. So every version out there of Windows. Yes. The vulnerability can be triggered by a remote attack sending uh, misconfigured mis packets. Correct. Of course, that means that the system has to be online, and but all servers obviously are. Could it be right. sent over port 80? Um, uh, no, it is S-channel. It is, it is in the secure suite. So okay. it's got to be it's some sort of a TLS or SSL deliberate malformed communication could an ias server that's not running tls doesn't have an ssl cert still be vulnerable uh it's probably not my guess is that that what they have probably somebody found a buffer overrun right. in 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 microsoft's uh https in their ssl tls protocol it's that bad. So if I so just so everybody understands, if I'm running Windows behind a NAT server, if I'm not running Windows bare to the internet, and I'm not running a SSL or a TLS of some kind, I'm not vulnerable. No, here's the problem. Oh. <laughs> uh, and what, where they said what systems are primarily at risk, and they said server and workstation systems that are running an affected version of S Channel. What may be possible is that. Any end user who connects to an HTTPS server, in doing that, if that server knew about this and was malicious, it might still bite you. 
So a server that is running IIS and no, no, no. Any, a server running any secure server. But, but you but you can compromise it this way easily. That secure server, and then it could go yes. on to compromise anybody connecting to it via SSL, or e even worse. Once this is once we know what the once this gets out in the wild, once the hackers know what this is, any web server that that end users connect to over a secure channel could reverse attack the end user. But it would have to be compromised. Well, no, or malicious. Yeah, but it let's say be... let's say I'm a company. I'm company, a big company running Outlook web web uh, server, so people can use their Outlook mail on the web. Yeah, okay. If good. my server my server gets compromised because I'm running IIS and I am out in the public, that that compromise could then input uh, malicious code on there that would infect every single person who logged into the Outlook web mail. Correct. One after the other. Boom, boom, boom. Yes, or, or you could also be Jimmy's. Uh, Jimmy's evil blog, right? At, that that like, or you know, Jimmy's secure and evil blog offering TLS connections right. for people who want to read the blog, and it's actually infecting the the workstation of everyone who visits. So the first thing as a hacker I would do is go after VPNs. I'd go yes, after go you well. Yes, like servers are our servers are clearly the 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 pot of gold. But they have to be running got, IIS or Windows. They have to be running on a Windows machine. Correct. An Apache based so, server, which is still the majority, fortunately. Yes, These are not and, and 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 Nginx, they're all going to be safe too. So right. you're fine. You know. Yeah, we're Nginx, absolutely an yep. Apache. Yeah. Yep. But if so you're running, but the, you're not, by the way, because you're running a Windows server. Right, and so is eBay, and so is Amazon, and oh no, no, not not Amazon. eBay is, uh, I think PayPal is. I mean, there are major sites which are on IIS platforms. I don't know what the percentage is now, but you know what, maybe 10, 20, 20 30. Or 30? Yeah, yeah. It's not the majority, but it's a significant portion. Yeah, and everyone knows who they are because the server right. identifies itself. If you go in, anywhere in that says ASP or you know any yep. the active server pages, that's it. So yep. they can be compromised. They, they, of course, can be compromised to this particular attack, and then they'll pass it along to all other Windows machines. But once you compromise a server, you might as well just put the whole kit and caboodle on there. Well, yes. And what, I mean, you know, depending upon the site that, that someone manages to penetrate, you know, I mean, we haven't had an exposed server protocol vulnerability well, except you know, I mean, okay, we, we you know, Heartbleed was that, but that was like a, as we know, a low statistical likelihood of compromise, and there was a mitigation. You could just turn off SSL, I mean SSH, correct. and then you're 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 fine. Right. There's well, no mitigation well, for this. You're saying you can't switch off a service. Right. This is probably in the underlying S channel library. If in core, it, it it's it's when your when your secure server accepts a connection over port four four three, you know SSL TLS. There's something that a bad guy can do to like send a huge motherload packet in, the containing their own code and. That server will execute their their code. I mean, it's like the worst thing that can happen. Are we like, not and doing it doesn't a sound like it's by publicizing this? I mean, shouldn't we just all keep this quiet until Microsoft can patch everything? 
Well, the good news is, I mean, I, I, I have to tell our listeners that anybody, certainly we have, we know we have listeners who are running. You're going to know. We, yeah, we know. Yes, exactly. Anyone who reads this is like going to have their eyes bug out when they come to the third thing on the list. And all we certainly have listeners who are running, who are in corporations running IIS servers. And they so should know. They need to know right now, um, you know, the moment I disconnect, I'm making a little road trip over to my data center because uh, I haven't been over there for a long time and it's time to do a little, you know, maintenance. But, yeah, I'm not leaving this thing this is, hanging for a this minute. This Yeah, it's the MS-14-066. And it's That's as bad as it gets. It is as bad as it gets for a remotely exploitable hanging out there flapping in the breeze open port uh you know you know pot of gold because what hackers want is servers they want servers and uh but end users need to pay attention too because it may very well be that uh, by connecting to a malicious server uh you could expose your workstation and that's not good either what is it on a server? Is there a Windows update just like there is on the desktop client? That you yeah, exactly the same procedure. Well, I mean, they, that, that's my, you know my annoyance with Microsoft is these, these are really all the same thing. You know, server two thousand three is it's Windows, Windows. seven. Yeah. So server two thousand eight is uh, is Vista. Uh, Twenty twelve is. Uh, no, I got that backwards. But anyway, yes. I mean, they, they they the server platform exactly corresponds to a workstation platform. They just configure it differently they just it's all same foundation same code same everything yep so there it is vulnerability in s channel could allow remote code execution we like have not that. seen any exploits in the wild as of yet right this just that this you know when they publish the code that you know this it's not like this is not going to get attention the bad guys are going to be tearing this thing apart. We can hope that Microsoft did what they could to obfuscate the change they made, like rearranging the code to so it's much more difficult to figure out what changed. Uh, but they always do that, and it, we've seen now the pattern. We know that patches are reverse engineered to find out what got changed. So it's it is certainly no one should rely on the idea that that this is not in the wild yet. It's just a matter of days now. And I imagine we're going to this we'll be talking about this for the next few weeks that that something's going to happen here. They so, don't mention XP in this list because they're no longer supporting it. Right, but I'm sure it's vulnerable. Well, if if server 2003 is vulnerable, I think that means XP is vulnerable. Goes all the way back. Yeah. yeah. So, um, this I think might... XP, I think through 2003, uh, I think it was Windows 2000 and XP. I, I don't remember how they were paired because there was a server 2000 that I was, think... I think that was with XP. Okay. Because, see, the fact that the fact that server 2003 is supported. Well, it's still updated. The, I, it's not XP. I think even that corresponds. Even if the core of it was XP, it's still supported directly. Right. Nevertheless, right. I, think, I, I imagine... think the 2003 and Vista were paired. Maybe I think those it. were the okay. two. And 08 and 7 and and then 20 and then 2012, server 2012 and and uh uh 8 Windows 8. Yeah. So, anyway, so we uh amid this gloom, it is significant that we got four I mean 
the 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 you know the silver lining is we did get four shiny new TLS cipher suites, and they are nice. Uh, two of them use RSA. Uh, uh, two of for 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 key agreement. Two of them use Diffie Hellman. So we know that that gives us uh, it, it's DHE ephemeral. Diffie-Hellman. We've talked about that. That gives us perfect forward secrecy. So we have two new, uh, of the four, two give us perfect forward secrecy, which is now what everyone wants. Um, and they are, they're GCM. They're Galois counter mode uh, ciphers. Remember uh, GCM, that's actually, that's the same uh, uh, cryptographic mode that I ended up choosing for Squirrel. It, it, it's a hybrid authenticated uh, encryption, which does both encryption and authentication at the same time, rather than needing to separately encrypt and authenticate. And as we talked about recently, SSL got it backwards, um, where uh, unfortunately, the authentication happens first, and then the encryption occurs, which means that um, and, and actually, it should have been the other way around because that means you decrypt, then you authenticate, and that exposes SSL um, to uh, all kinds of vulnerabilities. So uh, anyway, these, these, this is four new cipher suites, which, uh, which I'll also be bringing up this afternoon because they're, they're just beautiful um, and you know very secure uh, as SHA-256 and 384 uh, for the... For the, for the hashes. So uh, they, I'm, I'm glad to have them. So this is a nice update. Unfortunately, it's fixing a, uh, <laughs> a real problem that is going to, you know, it's going to force reboots of, of all these Windows machines after. Oh, and it does require a reboot, by the way. You're not getting away without, <laughs> because this is core, yeah. uh, you know, code in the kernel. Yeah. Wow. So in XP, is, that, XP is, uh, Server 2003 is XP. 2000 ah, is okay. 2000 Pro. So just to get that, that's and straight. and oh, good. So they did. Um, they are going back and fixing two thousand three. They are fixing, but they have been fixing, right? Um, oh, and and they'll fix XP as long as you say that you're that you use that embedded thing right. hack. They're so, still doing that. Yeah. So <clears throat> so XP. I'm I'm still getting uh, updates on XP because I said, oh yeah, I'm uh, I'm embedded. And you will want this <laughs> update. Not that most people run server on a plain XP machine, but maybe they do. No, but remember, know. clients are vulnerable, clients too. Clients are vulnerable, too. So if you surf to a compromised machine, then right. you will be exactly. compromised. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You, have, you have to go to a compromised machine, but nobody wants to do that. Right. In addition, we had, I mean, this is like almost, anti, it's, it's, it's almost an anticlimax, 17 vulnerabilities fixed in IE. Uh, XML core services were patched. Microsoft Office had three privately reported vulnerabilities fixed. There's also a problem we, which we don't often see in TCP/IP. If you, if you, if a bad guy got somehow got code running on your machine, this is this is not something that you have to worry about a lot. Uh, but they said in TCP/IP IOCTL processing. This security update resolves a publicly reported. Oh, publicly reported. So that's a little that 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 raises the bar. I mean, that means that everybody knows about it. Vulnerability in TCP/IP that occurs during the input-output control. That's the IOCTL processing. This vulnerability could allow elevation of privilege if an attacker logs onto a system 
and runs a specially crafted application. And again, it's like, okay, how is that going to happen? That's like not something you need to worry about. An attacker who successfully exploited this vulnerability could run arbitrary code in the context of another process. Well, that's not good. If this process runs with administrator privileges, an attacker could then install programs, view, change, or delete data, or create new accounts with full user rights. So this is one of those things where it's difficult to see how they would gain that foothold. But if they did, then, you know, all hell breaks loose. But still, they, it's, you know, the, the, the requirements for this are such that we're not, we're, no, we're not running around with our pants on fire the way we are for this, this you know, server, exp, the, this first vulnerability we talked about, MS-14-066. Uh, uh, but... Windows Audio Service also is being fixed. .NET Framework, SharePoint Foundation, Remote Desktop Protocol, IIS has a restriction feature bypass, Active Directory Federation Services, even the Japanese uh, IME, the Input Method Editor, had a vulnerability fixed. And not to be forgotten is the Windows Kernel Mode Driver has some problem where if a specially crafted true type font file was put out on a window share and a bad guy got you to enumerate it, he could take you over. So, I mean, this thing is just, it's got something for everybody, uh, but one really, really important update for that, that everyone needs to uh, handle immediately, like when you stop listening to this. So. Nice. Okay. Yesterday, <laughs> uh, Ob- Obama, President Obama, to address him formally, I guess, uh, announced that he's going to ask the uh, FCC to reclassify ISPs as telecommunications carriers under something known as Title II. And this, of course, has rekindled the whole debate. Uh, Your uh, producer, Jason, asked me for Brett Glass's email address yesterday uh since brett as as we know we but we had brett on the podcast to talk about this uh sort of has the isp's viewpoint of yes and isp's viewpoint if we got jane jasper of sonic that that'd be that might be another viewpoint but uh, yeah but i know brett feels very strongly again he's you know and so we thought we'd get him on twit uh Good. and we're trying to get neil patel to debate him which would be uh Fire. And this would be Sunday? Is this going to be us? Uh, yeah, so Sunday's Brett has quick? confirmed Good. we will have Brett on. And uh, and maybe we'll get Dane Jasper if we can't get uh, Neil I. But we, I'd, I want to get both sides of this because I think there are two sides. Uh, le- uh, the the um, Title II regulation is a fairly hardcore regulation. It regulates them as a public utility. And a lot of ISPs I- do not think that's a good idea. Right. A lot of the debate is, well, who do you want to regulate the Internet? Do you want the U.S. government to regulate the Internet? That seems like a bad idea. Um, but certainly these guys aren't going to regulate themselves. So it's a tough, tough challenge. It, it is. Um, I mean, I, I'm, you know, as an independent uh, serial entrepreneur who's created and and operated small companies for my entire life, I'm I'm I want as much freedom as I can have. But. I do recognize that the free enterprise capitalistic system has a flaw. Um, there is a tendency, and we see it happen, of for large companies to 
use their inherent power to become larger still. That is, in and, and what that does is it creates an unstable system. Um, from an engineering standpoint, negative feedback is is something that creates homeostasis, where as something begins to drift off, you know, if you have feedback that that corrects it, then then that's good. That that tends to create a stable system. The problem is that capitalism is inherently in, in, in a free market is inherently unstable. It it doesn't tend to self-correct. Large companies tend to get larger because of of network effects, as as it's called as it's known in economics. And so much as I dislike the idea of of you know government in quotes regulating i recognize the need for some control and i'm unhappy with you know the idea that there is actually no choice i have no choice in in my source of bandwidth and it turns out most americans don't most most of us have you know are are, are first of all unhappy with our bandwidth provider and have absolutely no no useful market choice. And, and, and so, of course, I'm sure Brett will point this out. The reason you have no choice is because the government intervened in the first place yeah. to create uh, monopolies for cable and DSL. Yeah. So I, it's a mess. And I think uh, I don't is. know what the answer is. I am, you know, President Obama campaigned uh, on the promise of supporting net neutrality. He has been kind of weak particularly in appointing Tom Wheeler, who many feel is just too compromised. A lobbyist for the cable industry. Yeah, and he's the chairman of the FCC. However, I have to say, Mr. Wheeler has been coming up with some pretty good ideas and creative ideas for trying to solve this conundrum. He has not just said, oh, trust the cable companies. They'll be fine. Um, So he's trying to – it seems like he's trying to do his best. But we were waiting for something from the president. And this is exactly the – I think most – uh, internet advocates, this is exactly what they wanted to hear. I'm, yeah, right. I have misgivings, and, though, and I think well, any reasonable does person does. Remember, remember too that that as I understand it, and I, I mean, I'm not obsessing about this. I haven't been following it super closely, but as I understand it, there the FCC did impose some regulations, and Verizon sued. That's right, and the Supreme Court agreed that the FCC did not have the authority to to regulate ISPs in that fashion. So basically, this is a response to that by reclassifying ISPs as as common carriers. Now there's no question that they fall under the FCC's regulation. Yeah. This and, was the, this was the know, roadmap the court gave the FCC. They said, "Look, you don't have I, the." Congress either get Congress to mandate this because Congress is what is is ultimately the body that tells the FCC what it can and cannot do. Either you right. get Congress to give you these powers, or you're going to have to go some other route like Title II. And right. uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, you know, Title II, as Brett has pointed out, has regulations that would be considered onerous for any internet service provider because well, it's really aimed. It's, at, it's aimed at Ma Bell. It's aimed at. Right. It's old and it's antiquated, and a lot of it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So, but it's the only thing we've got. At the moment, it'll be so, very interesting, and we're going to have yeah. a great debate on uh, on Sunday. I'm looking Wonderful. forward to it. Yeah. Okay, so I uh, I quietly departed uh, for Las Vegas on Thursday. 
Uh, I never just as just sort of general security protocol. I'd I'd never pre-announce what I'm going to be away because that just seems, you know, unwise. Um, but I always talk about trips when I come back. And uh, I was asked in the summer, I think in August, by Digicert, uh, my certificate uh, provider, with with whom everyone knows I am super happy. Uh, and of course, I've I've worked. Or during the whole CRL set thing, um, they they participate in the in the the, the certificate authority uh, organizing committee and, and groups and uh, and they had asked if I if, there were, if I wanted to you know uh, do a blog posting or or, or a, a submission there and I said no I've pretty much s- said my piece but anyway when they were holding a a security summit, their 2014 security summit with all of their major uh, customers and other interested parties. They said, hey, Steve, would you like to speak? And I said, well, uh, the only thing I really have to talk about is the project that I've been working on for then about nine months, uh, and that's Squirrel. And they said, we'd love to have you talk about Squirrel. And I said, well, then I'll happily show up. So uh, on Friday... I gave a presentation to the the entire conference, uh, basically a forty five minute front to back uh, talk, a presentation about Squirrel, how it works, what it does, the whole thing. Uh, and I don't know. Uh, there was a camera in the back recording it, and I, I mean, I just I've been so busy since I got back, I haven't had a chance. But I will shoot a note off saying, hey, you know. Is that presentation available? Because it, I did a very nice forty-five minute. I left nothing out, covered everything. You know, it's the the nicest formal presentation I've I've put together so far. So maybe I can get a copy of it. But afterwards, in the first break after my presentation, I was there were a number of people who were interested came up and we were chatting, and one of them was Brad Hill who I had never met, but I certainly knew his name because his name is all over all of the Fido docs. Uh, you know, Fido is the, you know, the big sort of historically moving slowly, sort of glacially forward authentication alternative. This is the one that, that, the, uh, that Ubico uh, key supports is Fido. Right. Well, they support Fido the, two. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, there, there's two specs. There's UAF, which is the like the full one, the U, uh, universal authentication framework. And then what they, what Stina sort of she sort of peeled off the part that she wanted, uh-huh. <laughs> frankly. Okay. And that's called U2F, universal two factor. And that's what she did with Google and what what we talked about a few weeks ago was that announcement. And um, and so it's sort of Fido Jr. Um, but, you know, and, and it, it operates com- very differently. Um, but it but it, it, it borrows some of the technology. Anyway, what what really delighted me was that Brad Hill, who is a very nice guy, uh, who is who? Who was at PayPal during all of this? PayPal made him available to the Fido project, so he was like one of the lead architects of of Fido. Um, 
he's now very recently switched over to Facebook. Uh, so he's now a security engineer, his business card says, at Facebook. He said that what he just saw was the most well-thought-out authentication system he has ever seen in what I presented. Squirrel. In Squirrel. Awesome. And uh, it, was, it, it was funny because there's one, you know, the, the key concept behind Squirrel, the, the thing that hit me that morning uh, just about a year ago, I think it was in November of 2013, and this just, you know, I'd been reading through Elliptic Curve Crypto and looking at Dan Bernstein's stuff. And there's a, there's a place on Dan's page uh, where he's talking about his his ED25519, the, the 255.19 Elliptic Curve, where he, in a sort of an old Q&A, he says, you know, how do you create a private key? And then his answer is, you don't. And And that's what's so special about the crypto that I chose is that anything can be the private key. And that's the, that's the fundamental basis for Squirrel because that anything is when you take the user's master key and use it to key a hash of the domain name. Then the result of that is the private key. And that's what's so cool because, for example, what Fido does, and, and this is unfortunately what like Stina's solution is, is they, they choose keys at random. And you, but so now you've got a random private key and the matching public key and nowhere to store it. So what they do is they encrypt it and give it to the server to store so oh. you're authenticating to the server, but the first thing you have to do is ask it back for the private key it's been holding for you, and then you decrypt it and use that to sign the the nonce that it gives you to prove that you have the private key that it just gave you. So huh. it's like, uh, okay. Anyway, so the, the the point of this is that I I sort of gloss over that. Obviously, there's no in a in a short presentation. I don't have time to dip into everything. So I have a diagram that I showed. You know, it's like it's that diagram on the first page of the squirrel pages at GRC where I you know show that process where you take the master key and hash it with the domain name. That's the private key. Then you run it through. A, an API call to produce the public key, and then you also use the private key to sign the URL, and the private key and the public key is your identity token, and the signature is your proof that you have the private key. And I just sort of, and then I move on. And so Brad was looking at that, and you know, really knows crypto, but wasn't aware of this particular property of the Bernstein. 25519 elliptic curve. So he came up to me at, as, as part of when we were talking about this, and he said, You know, he said, Remember that famous? Oh, and actually, he told me, He says, You know, you really need to, you know, change the, your presentation because you just sort of skipped over that step. And he said, Remember that, you know, that famous uh, joke where, 
you know, Einstein or, or someone is on a chalkboard and they're working out a proof of, of, of a theorem and they get stuck. They paint themselves into a logical corner. And so in this series of equations, there's like a little puff of smoke and, and, and it says, and then a miracle happens. And so <laughs> his point was that he recognized because he understands this stuff that that apparently something was missing. But it's this particular choice of crypto that solves that problem. And that's the magic of Squirrel. And, of course, now he understands that. And so then he was having to, he was digesting that, realizing that I just obsoleted the way Fido worked because it was a kludge Ooh. and Squirrel wasn't. Ooh. So anyway. Uh, how, how did he react to great, that? Uh, well, I didn't rub his face in it, but, you know. <laughs> He was, Did he kind of understand that? Oh, yeah, he definitely understood it. He said to me, he's, I mean, he said, that means there's no need to have the server store the private key on behalf of the user anymore. I said, right. right. And he yeah, said, we don't, I don't oh. have, we don't do that with, we don't do that with Squirrel. <laughs> oh. Much better, actually. <clears throat> Interesting. Wow. So, yeah, anyway, but he's a super nice guy and, uh, I I think he was glad for the meeting, and I certainly was good, because good, good. Yeah. somebody who really knows that this stuff uh, was able to to watch the presentation and then say this is the this is the most well designed authentication system I've ever seen, and this is the guy who just spent you know five years doing that. So well, wow, I hope people pay attention to that. Ah, well, we'll. Well, uh, it's going to succeed if it should. I hope it does. So I have one last security thing, um, and this is important. Um, for everyone who has a Belkin N750 dual-band router, I'm, I mentioned this. It's the, this specific router, but it's been around for three years. It, just began, it went on the market in 2011. So it's Belkin's. N750 dual band router. Um, there is a very easily exploited vulnerability that allows an attacker to gain root on the router through exploiting the guest network, which in, in which there's a problem with. Um, uh, just by some, the, the 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 guest network has a web page has a little web server where you authenticate and a specially crafted post verb you know http has get and post for submitting only a url query or that plus a block of data uh, and post is typically used for example for 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 submitting form the contents of forms um that if you if you maliciously format the post submission, you can access the Telnet server and get tel access to the Telnet, basically the command prompt with full root access on the router. Oh crap! <laughs> so they have a they have a firmware update. The firmware that everyone currently has ends in one dot ten dot sixteen m, as in Michael. Um, what you want is 1.10.17, sorry, 1.10.17M, as in Michael. 
So just a heads up. Uh, I'm sure within within the sound of my voice, with our whatever we have about a hundred thousand listeners, there are people with Belkin N750 dual band routers. As a workaround, you can immediately shut down the guest mode uh, if you want, if you're concerned. But this this allows war driving to really be you know war driving, <laughs> to, yeah, to, <laughs> war driving. It yeah. really means war. Wow. Yeah. So um, and in the show notes. I have a link to the guys that found it and a very simple proof of concept. Um, I mean, it's just, it's trivial to implement. Oh, and I forgot to mention, it's been put into Metasploit. So it, and it's an automated remote takeover module in Metasploit. So also very available. So anybody with this Belkin N750, uh, update your firmware. Get uh, .17M from Belkin. You know, and we don't say this enough because so many of these router manufacturers never update their firmware. Yeah, Thank they're just you, not Belkin. good about it. Well, it's such a yeah. commodity device. They, they, you're they, right. It's it's you're right. So right. thank you, Belkin, for fixing it. Yeah, you're right. It is. It really. I'm glad you said that, Leo. That's a very good point. It's easy for us, and I mean, we just sort of take it for granted. But uh, you're right. It's it. it uh, consumers, there's probably not a lot of demand because cons- no. consumers are typically yeah, see it as a, like a set a it box. and forget it box. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of incentive. I'm sure there's no money in fixing it, but they really should no. fix it. So good. Um, I I was um, exchanging tweet tweets with somebody last week, and I don't remember now what the topic was, but it was you know related to security, and and he said some he he. I guess in the tweet, in, in his tweet, he said that, oh, by the way, I, you know, Spinrite just came to the rescue for me. And he sent me a link to his blog post from last month, so a couple of weeks ago, October 2014. Um, and and the, the, the topic was, his, his subject was universal fix for Windows KSOD. And I thought, what? You know, we know about the BSOD, the blue screen of death. I thought, what's a KSOD? So he said, ever had your Windows installation inexplicably die, leaving your computer unusable without a fix? I have more times than I'd like to count. The last time this happened was yesterday when Windows 7 would only boot into a black screen with a movable cursor also known as the black with a capital K screen of death. So, you know, B was already taken for blue screen of death. So he used the K at the end of black. So KSOD for black screen of death. He said it was a serious case considering none of the safe modes or repair function in the Windows boot options would work. Yikes. Each option would universally end in either a KSOD, as he calls it, or the classic BSOD after hanging on, and then he has ASWRVRT.sys during safe boot. After exhaustively eliminating all possible regular fixes that were available on the Internet, I decided it was time for the big guns. Steve Gibson's Spinrite. He said... Prior to trying Spinrite, I first tried Kaspersky's Rescue Disk 10, 
which was entirely useless for my case. After booting from the rescue USB dongle, I would always get a missing operating system error in the boot screen. So it sounds like Kaspersky was needing a little more there than was present. And of course, Spinrite needs nothing. It operates, it brings its own little, you know, OS along with it. So anyway, he said, not reassuring. I have long been a fan of Steve Gibson's Security Now podcast, which I knew, which is why I knew of the tool. I knew the tool would be one of the few things that might do the trick, so I gave it a shot. After about an hour running Spinrite 6 and a few reboots later, my Windows 7 installation was working perfectly, as if nothing had ever happened. Spinrite saved the day. And then there's a bunch of stuff that I'm, I'm skipping over because then he said TL colon DR. Uh, Spinrite say at the end, Spinrite saved my machine from a perpetual and otherwise unbeatable KSOD scenario. And my guess is that if you are having KSOD problems, then Spinrite is one of the few things that might help you too. So I don't have his name, unfortunately, in front of me, but thank you. I'm, I'm sure he's listening to this right now. So I appreciated our our Twitter exchange, and thanks for sharing the link. Yep. And there it is. Universal The very, very cool screenshot showing the Dynastat, Dynastat system. Yeah, yep. not non-trivial to get a Dynastat screenshot because yeah. you're running uh, DOS. Exactly. I don't know how you'd get that. That's funny. That's awesome. Very nice. So he didn't even send this to you. This is just you saw the blog post. Yeah, well, he sent me the link. Oh, he and did. So that, okay. so, yeah, so I was able to, to find it that way. Right. And it's reposter.net. All right, a break has come. You may have a, have a, a warm beverage of your choice, Mr. Re- <laughs> Re- refill my coffee cup. Refill the mug because uh, here we go. We're talking a little bit about VPNs, protecting yourself online, and then we will continue on with Steve and uh, the subject of the day, which is uh, certificate transparency. Yep. Yep. Whatever that means, we'll find out. <laughs> but first, let's talk about protecting yourself, your privacy online. If you're at an open access point, you know that uh, you're sending your data through the air and anything that is not encrypted is visible to anybody who sits there with a simple tool. But did you also know that your uh, Internet service provider could be watching everything you do? And the same thing at the hotel and everywhere else you go. That's why the best solution is an open VPN server. Now, the ideal would be, well, you know, I shouldn't even say the ideal. You could set up your own, but then it's going to emerge from wherever you set that up. What ProXPN offers is something even better. Uh, open VPN servers you can log into all over the world. So your data, your presence emerges publicly on the net, not just <clears throat> in the U.S., Dallas or Seattle or Los Angeles or New York City, but also London, Amsterdam, Singapore, so you get total privacy. You can eliminate geographic restrictions by coming out at a different part of the world. It is it is the best way to protect yourself against free Wi-Fi, open access points. With ProXPN, you get a secure encrypted tunnel through which all your data passes. Any online application will work with ProXPN, of course, your browser, your email, file sharing, instant messaging programs. So this is the way to globally encrypt everything you're doing on the Internet. Works via open uh, VPN or PPTP if you prefer, although we know PPTP is less than desirable. You might say, well, my mobile device isn't going to support open VPN. Yes, it is. Thanks to ProXPN's free iPhone and Android apps, 
you get the benefits of uh, of desktop OpenVPN on your mobile device. There's software for Windows and Mac, too, which gives you even more control. You can select ports, connected startups, select which programs should be shut down if your anonymous connection is ever interrupted. Here's the deal. Go to proxpn.com slash twit. You'll learn more about it. Remember, it's OpenVPN from ProXPN. That's, I, you, you understand. It's a different website. ProXPN.com slash Twit. You will read about all of the technologies involved. And you can even see a table that talks about the free version of ProXPN and the premium version of ProXPN and the uh, extra features you get. The cost normally of a pro version of ProXPN is $10 a month. Or you could buy for a year, but we've got a special, which will give you a, a reduced cost of, I think, about $6 a month. But we've got a special offer. Use the code SN50 at checkout. You're going to get 50% off the monthly price when you sign up for a 12-month subscription. That means less than 5 bucks a month when you sign up for a year. And that's good, not just for the first month or year, but for the lifetime of your account. And it is like a free trial because if you're not satisfied, you can cancel within seven days and get a full refund. So you have a week to try it and decide, is this right for me? I think you'll think it is. And I want you to use that offer code SN50 so you get 50% off your year-long subscription, bringing it down to $5, less than $5 a month. ProXPN, they accept payments through Visa, PayPal, and yes, Bitcoin. Now we're talking... We thank ProXPN so much for their support of Security Now. Visit ProXPN.com slash twit. Use the code SN50, SN50, 50% off your yearly subscription for the life of your account. Let us continue on with Mr. Gibson and a little bit of certificate transparency. Okay, so everyone knows who's been following the podcast for any period of time, how the current certificate authority anchored system operates. The idea is that that certificate authorities verify the identity to differing degrees of entities, you know, individuals, companies, uh, organizations of any kind who want to have a present want, want, want to assert their identity on the internet. So the idea is that they prove who they are to the certificate authority. They they provide their servers public key to the to the CA the certificate authority. The certificate authority signs that public key. And gives it back to them. Then whenever someone connects to them, they send the client, the user's web browser typically, this signed public key. The public key itself is the key to them establishing a secure connection with each other because their private key, the matching private key, never leaves their control and them having the private key that matches the public key they've just provided is the is the way a, a secure tunnel is bootstrapped such that nobody listening in the middle can can intercept and the fact that it's signed 
by the certificate that this public key, which is going is which is what's going to be used for communication, the fact that it's signed means that somebody else, a third party, whom whom the the client trusts to have performed due diligence, has is asserting yes, this is really. Amazon or Facebook or eBay or PayPal or GRC or, or whomever you're establishing a secure connection with. So that's the model. Now, we've talked about the many ways this fails. Good as it is, th- there are problems with it. For example, we're trusting, I mean, a, a hundreds, many, like four or five hundred different, different authorities to w- w- with this performance of due diligence and the problem is all, wh- whereas all of GRC's certificates are only signed by my chosen certificate authority digicert it is entirely possible for and I'll just pick on them because they're my my typical whipping boy, that it's entirely possible for the Hong Kong post office to sign a fraudulent certificate asserting that it is GRC and for, and if the Hong Kong post office, which is a CA, a certificate authority, is trusted by the user's browser, then a different website can impersonate GRC if they're also able to get DNS to cooperate because somebody's web browser has to believe they're going to GRC but be given the wrong IP address or be intercepted and rerouted to a fraudulent server that's offering a a certificate signed by an untrustworthy certificate authority. So that's one of the problems. Then, of course... There, there's so that so that's like the the malicious CA problem, but then there's the the compromised certificate authority. And re- remember, we talked about years ago that the famous DigiNotar problem. DigiNotar was a were they? I think they were Dutch um, certificate authority that had a breach, had hundreds of certificates. Um, created somehow in, in their system, somebody got in and was able to like get all kinds of certs signed. They knew about it and didn't tell anybody, hoping that they could get away with it. Well, that the fact that they they found out about it and kept quiet ended them. They went they were they went, were bankrupt a few months later because it's one thing. You know, anyone can make a mistake, but if you're a CA, you have got to immediately acknowledge that that when you find out there is a problem and take responsibility for it. And the fact that they didn't meant that no one could ever and would ever trust them again. All the browsers immediately suspended their support. And if you don't have browsers trusting you, remember this whole thing is is that the browser verifies the certificate by by trusting the signer of it. And if the browsers uh, retract their their trust of the certificate authority, the, that certificate authority is out of business. No one, no one. I mean, they can't they can't assert their their 
uh, reputation, uh, even if they didn't, even if they hadn't completely wrecked their reputation. So there's the there's that problem, and then so we have the malicious CA. We've got the compromised CA, and then just the mistake where you know, like there was another instance more recently where a certificate authority had issued a certificate that had CA rights. That is, normally the intermediate certificates are themselves unable to uh, to to be a, a certificate authority, but that's just a bit flag in the in in the privileges. In, you know, in, in the characteristics of the certificate. And some, one CA did issue a, a, an, an infinitely powerful certificate that was able to sign any search of any kind. And so that mistake w- w- was corrected. So the point is that there are, there are a number of things, a, a number of ways that, that this existing hierarchy with certificates can break. And so, um, the, and, and because of Google's size, they are almost always at least among the websites that are, um, that are compromised. That is, they're discovering bogus certificates that they didn't issue that other people issued. And, I mean, one of the things that is nice about, about Chrome, the Google browser, is that they've built technology in where Chrome knows much more about the specific, because Chrome is from Google. Um, Chrome knows about the val- the validity of Google's own certificates and immediately sends up all kinds of warnings if if an if an in if a certificate that appears to be valid for Google.com or any of Google's properties is used on the Chrome browser that's actually not from Google. So so they're in a special place, you know, having both um, making certificates and their own browser that can be aware of this, this the, all the certificates that should be considered legitimate. But, you know, none of the rest of us have our own browsers that everybody's using, so that doesn't work for us. Still, Google has spiders, bots, which are out rummaging around the internet. That's what they do. They're basically going to all websites and servers, following links, sucking down and indexing the entire internet. And so it occurred to them at some point, it's like, hey, you know, every time we connect to a server following a secure link, and that's happening historically more and more, we get the certificate, you know, that's what happens. The, the first stage of establishing a secure connection is the secure server sends the client, that in this case is a Google bot, they certificate. So they began to think, you know, um, why don't we start collecting these, all of these certs? Because, I mean, these are all the certs on the internet, all the certificates. And when you think about it, that doesn't exist anywhere. There's no repo- central repository of all the certificates. But imagine if there were. Imagine if every certificate issued existed in some kind of database that could be queried. I would love to query it. Hey, 
what are the GRC.com certificates? Let me have them. Because, boy, don't I want to know if there are any that, <laughs> that I don't know about. And in fact, everybody wants to know that. It couldn't be used to validate because some might be bogus. Ah, well. And so, yes. So um, so the first phase of this was this notion of, of collecting them all. And, and <laughs> okay, so, so we, 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 we use Google's bots to, to, to create this database. Um, then, and, and then Google started saying, okay, what we want is some, somehow they sort of made this conversion to this, this idea of, okay, we will, we'll put all the certificates in that we encounter. Now, We'd like to be able to allow people to query the database to, for properties that they care about and find out if, you know, what certs we have encountered that are there. Um, we'd, we'd also like to encourage certificate authorities to submit certificates that they're in the process of issuing. So, and so this is sort of, it's going to kind of have to bootstrap itself, but, but the idea would be that ultimately this database would run in parallel to the existing CA verification. First of all, the, this, and they call it a log. They, they, they call it the certificate transparency log. It's it's not a it's not a log, in the traditional sense of, and as I'll explain in a second, they they call it a log because, it, like a log, like a, a correct log, it has what they call an append only property. That is, by its design, all you can ever do is append to it. So, it is a it's a chronology of all the certificates that have been found so far that and the structure of it is such that it can only be appended to and it has a series of security properties in its design that allow it that, that that don't require it to be trusted. This is where it starts to get a little mind bending from a from a security standpoint. But um, but the idea would be that if it exists and its design is correct, and, and I should say it does exist, and the design is correct. So these are sort of. I'm sort of trying to lay down a, a framework for understanding this. And it could be trusted. And again, that problem has been solved, and I'll get to that in a second. Then web browser clients could 
rely on it as an additional as as an additional source of information that is people who owned domain properties could check the log to see to to verify that only the properties the domain properties that they own are present that is there are no fake versions of their certificates and if if they found them then they would go through the normal process for for remediating that they would notify all browser vendors um, and tell the C the, the the CA who issued that cert that this was bogus and get them to revoke it and tell the browsers to revoke it and so forth so 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 the idea is that you you first of all to get this thing bootstrapped browsers will only trust certificates that they receive from servers if they are if those certificates are members of this certificate transparency database and and okay so so that's a requirement that is the the certificate must be in the database in order for the browser to trust it and then the database must be queryable by the owners of the certificates to to allow bad certificates to be found because because only if the certificate only if a bad certificate is in the database will a browser trust it so so what's what's useful about this is that it is by creating a a a sort of a, a repository of all certificates. We don't have that now. Right now, the browser receives the certificate from the web server and checks the, the chain of trust back, the validity of the chain of trust back to someone, some single certificate authority that signed it. But that does allow a like a like within a within a controlled environment like in Iran just to to pick on someone for 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 them to control a CA and for for them to issue certificates for google.com for example which which appear to be valid only because the chain of trust is local. It's never, it's never being, being, you know, having a bright light shined on it. It's never being exposed to to the light of day. It's the 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 protocol is is doesn't have global scope. This system gives certificates global visibility, which Google calls certificate transparency. So, okay, now how does this work? Um, one way, uh, the, the way to start visualizing this is as for the, the first way to think about it, which is not the way it's actually structured, but we have to start somewhere, is as a, a chain, a linear chain of hashes of certificates. So you start at the, you start with the, the first certificate and you ha- you get you take the SHA two fifty six hash. Now you you take the second certificate. You append the hash of the first one to it, and you hash them. 
Now you have a second hash, which you append to the third certificate and hash them. And now you have a third hash, which you append to the fourth certificate and hash them. And you have the fifth hash and so on. So what you have is a is a chain of hashes of certificates, which which creates a dependency chain. That is, when you get done hashing all the certificates in this, you know, one by one in this chain, the if you think about it, due to the the way hashes work, um, the <coughs> the resulting single hash is a value which you only get if every certificate that you you only get as a result of hashing all of the certificates sequentially and now moving forward from there any new certificates that come along it's easy to evolve this that is from from a given 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 starting point of having all that work done in the past you you hash any new certificates sequentially adding them to the front of the chain and the resulting final hash is the head of this chain and so essentially thanks to this magic cryptographic processing of the way hashing works all, you you have you have a you essentially you're able to 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 state the proof that all the every single previous certificate is has been seen if you get this final value and and incrementally what this means is that that is the, it, it's provable that you have this append only property because any particular version of this log which and will will this log is this chain of hashes is is the full proper superset of any previous version that is because you can you can always look at the the, the you take a the 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 any previous version is entirely representable just by the 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 final hash that was its head and you append to it by hashing additional certificates now if that was the if that was the actual model this would be not be very practical and very cumbersome so it turns out that instead of a linear chain we can use a tree and if we use a tree structure suddenly this thing becomes incredibly cool there's there's a data structure known as a merkle m e r k l e a merkle hash tree and a merkle hash tree is is exactly what i described but using a binary tree structure rather than a linear hash chain so so 
and and I've never I don't think I've really ever talked about trees. One of the things I had always planned to do on the podcast was do a fundamental data structures series of podcasts to talk, you know, because we've done other fundamental things like CPUs and the internet and other stuff. And I thought data structures, the fundamental underpinnings of data structures would be really great, but you know, the world's just gone crazy with <laughs> security problems and we've never we've have very little chance to talk about that kind of stuff. But a binary tree is a rat is is if you if you, you if you took two things like two um, hashes of certificates and hashed them together um, and and then took two other hashes of certificates and hashed them together, then you took those two hashes that you'd done and hashed them together into a top one. So you can sort of see how it's there's a top node which splits into two and it splits into two and so on. So it turns out that, that okay, and what I just described is, in, is that is a Merkle hash tree. All it is is a series of, of, of joinings from the bottom up of two hashes into a third or, or to make a third and then somewhere else you take two hashes to make a third, and then you hash those together to make a fourth, and, and so on. So this, so this binary tree has the, the very cool property that because, and this is where it's difficult, I mean, I'm already sort of into where it's difficult to, to do this on an audio podcast without any, without any uh, audiovisual tools, but the idea is that where the where the size of the log grew as a linear function if it was just that first linear example if you do a if you use a binary tree it grows with the log of the number of certificates that is it grows incredibly more slowly so that for example if if you if you if you double the size uh, or you double the number of certificates that are in the tree the the tree is able to grow um um only one it only requires one additional level of growth so it is it, it is a far more efficient means for for storing these hashes. And there if anyone's curious, look up Merkle hash trees because essentially what this means is that every certificate that has ever been found uh, and I should explain these logs exist now. There are about 7 or 8 of them that are being maintained. Google has about 4. Digicert, my certificate authority, was working with Google on this early on. They're running one, and there are a couple other people who are. And it is Google's intention, I, last I saw, to, to in Chrome, starting in just a few months, in February of 2015, to require certificates to be present in and present and 
proven in this in this certificate transparency log to have EV status. Um, so this is another thing Google is doing to work on on dramatically strengthening the certificate authority system. Um, and the, the, we, it, we, it's easy to get lost in the weeds here because it turns out that there are, when you have this tree structure, you can demonstrate that, that very few nodes need to be known in order to provide a proof that a given certificate is present in the tree. And that's the key. If, if this, if the, if we had this 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 single linear list of sort of of like hat chained hashes to to prove that a given a single given certificate was in the tree we would have to have the hash in front of it that is the hash that that was there before it was added and its hash and all the certificates since to get to 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 prove that the value we end up with is the value at the end of the chain. But by breaking this down into a binary tree, it, the, the number of hashes that we need is just a handful because the binary tree structure is so efficient that it is, it is very economical to provide a proof that a given any given certificate in the world is has been represented in this tree and that's what's so cool about this is the proof is very efficient and very lean and and that allows all the certs to be dumped in and what will be happening in the future is that certificate authorities will be submitting voluntarily submitting their certificates to this the certificate transparency log, which is in this tree structure, in order to essentially pre-announce their certificate as being in the world. And so we'll no longer have a situation where a certificate authority can go rogue and have its rogue its rogue-issued certificates ex- blindly accepted by browsers and having us um, you know, maybe discover that that exists. Once this system is in place and running and enforced uh, within a matter of hours, typically, any maliciously um, issued certificate will be found. So that that's the ambitious project that Google uh, embarked on uh, about a year ago, RFC 6962, if anyone's interested, and in their in the little abstract first paragraph, it says this document that is the certificate transparency document describes an experimental protocol for publicly logging the existence of TLS certificates as they are issued or observed in a manner that allows anyone to audit certificate authority activity and notice the issuance of suspect certificates as well as to audit the certificate logs themselves. The intent is that eventually clients would refuse to honor certificates 
that do not appear in a log, effectively forcing certificate authorities to add all issued certificates to the logs. So ambitious, but uh, it may happen. And uh, a very, you know, it's a substantial and significant addition to the Internet's uh, security infrastructure. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Thank Certificate you for transparency. transparency. And by which we don't mean disappearing, we mean uh, transparency about Vi- the visibility, the yes, provenance. visibility. Yeah, visibility. Yeah, exactly. Making yeah. it all, making what's happening transparent uh, to everyone. Don't know what this means, but uh, the chat room just uh, pointed out that uh, Whisper, Open Whisper Systems has just tweeted that Redphone was removed from the Play Store today. The tweet says we don't know why, but we've reached out to Google support for more information. That was uh, one of the security huh. uh, products created by Open Whisper Systems along with the text secure uh, text right. messenger that we had recommended. Right. Uh, and I should mention that these Merkle hash trees, it they're in... Uh, 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 LimeWire and Bitcoin and Nutella. I mean, the, 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 ha- the Merkle hash tree itself is not an invention of Google. Uh, it's a very handy way for managing uh, peer-to-peer peer file sharing uh, in order to handle, you know, in order to like verify that sets of files uh, that have been received are valid by taking their hashes and then receiving the uh, a chunk of of the tree. And by evolving these trees over time, the Merkle hash tree itself is a is a really interesting data structure in fundamental computer science. It was invented back in 1975, I think. Uh, uh, and has has been around and used for many different purposes ever since. Interesting, yeah. Steve is uh, at grc.com. That's where you'll find Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. We highly recommend it. While you're there, though, you might want to check out some of the freebies Steve offers at grc.com, including this show. 16-kilobit audio is there of the show. That's the smallest audio file we offer. Uh, plus a full uh, text transcript written by Elaine Ferris. Thank you, Elaine. And uh, all sorts of other stuff, including information, more information about his squirrel protocol. If you want to get involved in that, there's forums. There's a lot going on. If we do a Q&A next week, uh, your questions will come to Steve in one of two ways. He does uh, read uh, tweet replies. So at SGGRC is his handle. Uh, and you can also uh, use his uh, website. That's probably the best way grc.com slash feedback, and uh, your feedback will be received by Steve that way. Uh, we have full quality audio and video of the show at our own site, twit.tv slash sn. Uh, we also make sure that it's available everywhere you get your finer podcasts. If you want to watch uh, live, you can do so at twit.tv every uh, Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 2100 UTC at twit.tv. Thank you, Steve. Okay, my friend, I will be watching uh, Brett Glass talk about that net neutrality yeah. on this coming Sunday. Yep. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll uh, orient for a, uh, a Q&A next week. And while we don't ever reveal Steve's itinerary, I do think he might be heading over to level three at some point later today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, everybody, update your Windows systems. I'll be doing that. You'll notice that GRC disappears from the net briefly here briefly, in about uh, only reboots. an hour or so. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. We'll see you next time on Security Bye. Now. Bye-bye.